should be able to support this, but we do have three classrooms going. Right. Who knows what else? Yeah. Rest of the people building, are surfing. So. People are watching movies out there in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was worth a try. Okay. I, know. I appreciate you trying. Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and uh, get started. It's good to see everybody here tonight. I think I was here last weekend, or last week, I was talking about how it was getting warmer, and now we're going to take a little turn back, right? Spring isn't quite here, but it's getting close. It's getting closer. So there was a new handout for tonight. So the new handout goes through... 86. So page 86 should be the last one that you have. And if I put my mark in the right spot, we left off towards the bottom of page 80 is where we're at. So page 80. We were just getting ready to talk about Jesus cursing the fig tree there in chapter 21. All right. So I'll go ahead and uh, open us in prayer and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, I'm grateful to, to be here tonight. I'm just thankful for your, your mercy and kindness that brings us all together safely uh, with a measure of good health and a comfortable, warm place to study Scripture, to have it in our own language and have the freedoms and protections to study it without fear. I just pray that you'd help us to think clearly and to use this time well, and we ask that your Son would be honored. And we ask for this help uh, from your spirit and your son's name. Amen. All right. So if we look at 
chapter 21 and 22, kind of the big picture. We saw this slide last time. Jesus is now entered into Jerusalem. His actual entrance was the first of three acted out parables. So just like the Old Testament prophets would sometimes use some object lessons in order to teach a point, Jesus basically does three object lessons or three acted out parables. He chooses a purebred donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Then he went up into the outer temple courts and cleared them of the merchants and, uh, and uh, money changers that were there in the court of the Gentiles. And then when we were picking up here at the end um, of that first section, he's going to curse a barren fig tree. I just, we just quickly mentioned this, but I just wanted to mention it one more time. If you look at point two there on page 80, toward the bottom of point two, I think that Jesus is pointed to a couple of Old Testament prophecies in these acted out parables. For sure, he's pointed to Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy of the donkey. We know that because Matthew explicitly mentions it. But I think one of the things that he's doing when he goes in and he cleans the temple is he's clearly indicating that he, he is the Lord of the temple. It's, it's his house. Uh, he has the right to decide how it should be used. And he's fulfilling prophecies that said that when the Messiah would come, he would be one who cleansed the temple. So just uh, wanted to start here with just a couple verses from Malachi 3, 1 through 4. We've already seen this passage before. In Matthew. Remember, this is the one that was quoted when it talked about Elijah coming as the forerunner of the Messiah. So the prophecy in Malachi said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So this is a one of a couple passages in the Old Testament where there's two people or two persons who are talking who are both referred to as the Lord. The other one is Psalm 110 that we'll look at in just a little bit. But you have the Lord God the Father speaking about the Lord God the Son. And it's God the Son that we now know in retrospect is the one who comes to his temple and cleanses it. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years." Notice, this is Malachi. This is the very last book in our ordering of the Old Testament. This is the very last Old Testament book that's written. It's written in the, the 400s, so just a little over 400 years before Jesus was born. And I think one of the more significant things about it, it's already written after they have the second temple. So they've already come back from Babylon. They've already had a new temple built. It's the forerunner to the building that now Jesus is in. And already the prophet Malachi is pointing to the fact that the worship in this new second temple is corrupt. 
It's going to need to be cleaned up, so to speak. And it's going to be God himself who comes someday in the future to clean his temple. And I think Jesus, in this little preview of his coming, his second coming, is showing that he's the one with the, the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. He's showing his ownership over the temple. The second thing he does, which would be the third of these acted out parables, is he shows his displeasure with the people of Israel, his fellow Israelites, by cursing this fig tree. So this is the very last of those opening three. We pick it up there at the bottom of page 80, verse 18. Uh, Matthew, he telescopes the events that occurred over two mornings into his account, all right? So what do I mean by that? If you compare this story with the parallel story in Mark, in Mark, they go one day into Jerusalem, and on the way they see the fig tree, and Jesus curses it because it doesn't have any fruit on it. and Basically, uh, pronounces a curse, may you never have any fruit again. Then they go into Jerusalem, and Jesus clears out the temple, and then they go back that night to Bethany where they're staying. And then it's on the next morning as they're walking into the city that the disciples notice, hey, that, that fig tree that you cursed yesterday, it's, it's withered. You know, something supernatural has happened. You know, the trees do not just normally wither up that quickly. So we know it actually happened on two days. Matthew, remember, he's not constrained by having to tell things in chronological order. He just shrinks it into one story, one story. But he's not being deceptive. There's nothing in the text that would say it had to happen on one day. He's just made it a little tighter, a little neater to read, where Mark, for his own reasons, has split it. And when you think about Mark's reasons, Mark would have had very good reasons for doing that. Because Mark sees the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple as kind of two sides of the same coin. They're both Jesus' ways of saying, I'm not really pleased with the worship that's taking place in Jerusalem. So I think at this point it was just helpful to stop and think about the, the order of Jesus' final week. So on Saturday, he was anointed in Bethany. That's not in Matthew's Gospel, but we know that from, from Luke and from John. He goes into um, Jerusalem on what we would call the first day of the week, Sunday. It was probably on Monday that he first sees the fig tree and then he cleanses the temple. And now everything that we're going to talk about today and next week and probably even the week after is all things that are going to take place on Tuesday. It doesn't look like anything significant happens on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, that evening, they have the Passover, the Last Supper. He's crucified on Friday. I know that's, that's a little bit controversial, so we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. And then on the third day of being dead... He's risen on Sunday, the next first day of the week. All right? So why the fig tree? I think the fig tree here represents the nation, the people of Israel, you know, viewed collectively, viewed as a whole. There were exceptions. There were some born-again people within the nation, like 11 of his 12 apostles. But if you looked at them from the wide-angle view, they were not producing fruit, all right? So the nation had not accepted their Messiah and produced the fruit of repentance, so they would be judged with the destruction of the temple, which the disciples viewed as they approached Jerusalem. 
The destruction of a tree which would have been producing fruit symbolized the nation which should have repented. And it's this point here that Jesus also uses the opportunity to teach his disciples about faith. These are some difficult verses, so let's just read them, verses 21 and 22. So just to back up, in verse 20, the disciples see what's happened to this tree. They're amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? It's kind of a strange thing for them to say, isn't it? After all they've seen Jesus do in Matthew's gospel, really the tree, <laughs> that's what grabs your attention? How, how did that happen? How did you do that, Jesus? How did that tree wither so quickly? And so Jesus replies in verse 21, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. It's a little bit parallel to something that Jesus said earlier. Remember when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17? He talked about their lack of faith and not being able to cast out the demon from that young boy. So what does Jesus mean here with these verses? You could see how these could easily be misapplied, right? If there's just something you want, and if you pray hard enough for it, it'll come true. And then a, a wrong view might be, well, then if you don't get an answer to your prayer, there must have been something wrong with you, right? You must not have had faith, or you must not have prayed hard enough or fervently enough. So how would we answer that? I think there's, there's several points that are helpful to think through. So first of all, I think you know, this passage is parallel to Matthew 17, and it's right for us to put Scripture pieces together, right? And to look at all of what Scripture says about prayer. And we notice there that what's important when we pray is not the quality of our faith or the size of our faith, but the object of our faith. We, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating, right? Remember, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to something, move, right? And it will move. Mustard seed was like the smallest thing that they thought of in the natural world. Today, we might have said, if you had faith as small as an atom, right, or, or a proton or something. So the point is, like, the difference between having faith that's not like a mustard seed would be not, no faith at all, non-existent faith. So the point is, you don't need more faith. You don't need a better quality faith. You just need faith in the right person. You need to trust in the right object of faith. And the right person is God. Anything that God wants to do, he's able to do. Nothing is impossible for him, right? So if you're trusting in the right person, then anything he wants you to do or any promise that he's made can come true. So I think the second thing, I think it's assumed that when Jesus says this, that he's speaking of prayers that match God's will, all right? So he's assuming that you're praying thing, for things that would be pleasing to God, that would actually match God's will. And I think as we pray, it's actually one of the means that God uses to shape our wills. So we could start out praying for something, and in the process of praying for it over time, we could actually start changing the way we pray. And it's actually that process that God uses to match our wills with His will. 
so that we do start praying for things that would be pleasing. Specifically, I'm not as sure about this. We know for sure that they're, they're there at the Mount of Olives. So when he says this mountain, he literally, I think, is pointing to a mountain. So it's not just hyperbole. It's not just a figure of speech. Uh, we know that moving mountains does seem to have kind of a proverbial flavor because remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul will talk about love that can move mountains, right? But here I think he's literally saying this mountain, this, this ridge, the Mount of Olives. And I think that he could, it's with the emphasis there on could, right? He could be referring to the coming of the kingdom prophesied in Zechariah 14. In other words, he could be referring to something specific that God's promised to do and that he's asked us to pray for. If that's right, then it would be parallel to the, the model prayer. So remember back in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says one of the things that we're supposed to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So one of the things we know for sure we're supposed to be praying for is that our Lord Jesus would return from heaven and establish his good kingdom over this world and to make this world new again, right? Well, the reason why I say I think that could be what he's talking about, because let's look at Zechariah 14 real quick. This is going to become really important as we go into Matthew 24 and 25. The prophecy in Zechariah 14, first, it starts out by talking about the day of the Lord that's coming. Remember way back at the beginning of last semester, so this has been a while ago, we talked about what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. And we said it was parallel to all of the places in the Old Testament that said that the day of the Lord was near or the day of the Lord is imminent. So the day of the Lord is a, it's a, an important topic in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a big concept. It basically is God's campaign or God's war that he's going to wage to rightly take back the rule of this world. So it's not a day as in a 24-hour day. It's a long campaign, okay? It's a prolonged event, and it's referred to over and over again in the Old Testament prophecies as the day of the Lord, and it's, it's just right around the corner. The prophets keep saying it could show up at any moment. It's imminent, so you need to repent. You need to be ready for it. Well, one of the things that's going to happen at the day of the Lord is that the people of Israel will be in a, a horribly desperate situation, attacked by the nations, and it, the prophecy says that the Lord himself will appear and he will fight for them and he will rescue them. Okay, So I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. It says, The day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. So it's a horrible picture, right? A horrible picture of them falling underneath their covenant curses. You have to believe that in AD 70, when the city was surrounded by the Romans and that horrible siege was taking place, there must, have been very, there must have been many religious Jewish people that thought, this is it, right? The Messiah will show up and he'll rescue us. And they were tragically mistaken because he had just been there 
30-some years earlier, and most of them had missed him, right? So they're, they're still waiting for this prophecy to take place. So once again, they'll find themselves in a desperate situation like they were when Nebuchadnezzar attacked or like they were when the Romans attacked. But this time, God will say, it's enough. <laughs> the line of the tribe of Judah will roar, and he will come and he will rescue his people. So the prophecy goes on. Then the Lord will go out, and he will fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, so that's the same day, the day of the Lord, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So I'm not really sure the holy ones could be angels or they could be saints. They could be redeemed people. But you get the idea, right? The Mount of Olives has special prophetic significance. Anyone who is familiar with their Old Testament prophecy, when they start seeing Jesus do things on the Mount of Olives, it would have reminded them of this passage. And one of the specific things that is prophesied is that the Mount of Olives will move. It actually will move, and a valley will be formed so that people can flee from the siege. All right? I thought it was worth pointing that out at this point for two reasons. One, because that could be what Jesus is talking about here. But for sure, when we get to Matthew 24, it's no accident that he gives his prophecy about his second coming on the Mount of Olives. Okay, So the, what we call the Olivet Discourse, or his final of the five discourses in Matthew, he's going to choose the Mount of Olives to be the setting. Because remember, it's from the Mount of Olives in the book of Acts that he ascends, and he also says that it's there that he'll return someday. Okay? The next set. We, then we move from three acted out parables to three, if I can call them this, the, the old-fashioned kind of parables, the kind of parables that we're used to Jesus telling, where he just tells a story from their everyday life that made some significant points about him or his kingdom. These are set up, though, by this confrontation with the, uh, the chief priests and the elders. So let me just read that to you. This is now verses 23 through 27. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts. So remember, during this last week, he's going back and forth. You can't stay in Jerusalem during Passover. There's no room. The city is packed, and so most people would go out somewhere else at night, and he's going back, we know from the other Gospels, to his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their house in Bethany. <clears throat> but one day he comes back into the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they came to him, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? We know the answer, don't we, right? If we've been reading carefully through Matthew's gospel, we know this. And Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. This is very Solomon-like, isn't it? Remember in the, earlier in the gospel, he said someone greater than Solomon is here? Uh, Solomon was the wisest of people, right? For 
about 900 years, and then our Lord came, and he is much wiser than Solomon. So he's, he's answering a question with a question. He says, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves, and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things, right? He makes it very clear that this isn't a, this isn't a genuine question, right? This is an attempt to trap him, and he's no longer going to be drawn into their traps. So this, is, this act of disbelief, of rejection, is what leads him then to give these three parables, the all in rapid fire succession, point back to the unbelief of these leaders. All right. So the the first one here is about a parable of a man who has has two sons. All right. So he tells the first son in verse twenty eight, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Verse twenty nine, the first one says, you know, I, I won't do it. I won't go, Dad. But later he changed his mind and he went. It's a, it's a picture of repentance, right? Initially he says, no, I won't do it. But then he, he goes and he does it. But then there's another son, verse 30. He's asked the same thing and he says, I will, sir. Yes, dad, I'll, I'll do that right away. But then he did not go. And so Jesus asks those leaders, which of the two did what his father wanted? And they have to answer the first, right? even though it's actually the second son who represents them. That's the irony of the story. Because they're the ones that would have said, yes, I want to do God's will, but they're not actually doing it. Because if they would, if they were, they would recognize Jesus. So here's the, here's the harsh statement that Jesus says to them. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. So Jesus, he didn't come to find good people, did he? The gospel never found any of us doing what we were supposed to. Whether we were saved as little kids or we were saved much later in life, we were all, like Isaiah 53 says, going our own way like sheep, right? It wasn't about who we used to be. It's about what happened by the Spirit when the gospel message came, right? We were going one direction, and then we turned, and we went a different direction. That's what it means to repent. And these proud, self-righteous men are not thinking that they need repentance, right? They're perfectly comfortable with the direction that they're headed. So then Jesus gives a second parable. So this parable is about a vineyard. So you got a landowner in verse 33. This would have been a pretty common thing in their day. Uh, the money is not as distributed evenly as it is in our culture. So you would have had land owned by some pretty wealthy individuals, and then they would have hired it out to tenant farmers, right? Kind of like existed in medieval Europe. 
where you worked somebody else's land and you had to either pay rent or you had to pay part of your crop back to the Lord. So the, the man in the story, he, he creates a vineyard, he takes care of it, surrounds it with a wall, he goes off to another place and he leaves his tenant farmers in charge and then he sends back his servants in order to collect tax. But then something shocking happens. In verse 35, when the servants get there, one of them gets beaten, one of them gets killed, and one of them gets stoned. And then finally, after this has been going on, verse 37, he says, last of all, he'll send his son to them. Surely they'll respect my son. I think by this point in the story, we kind of see where Jesus is going with this. But when the tenants see the son, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then so now he, he asks the leaders who are standing there, you know, what, what should the landowner do with these tenants? Well, what can they say at this point? It's pretty obvious, right? It says in verse 41, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at harvest time. And then Jesus, turning around on them, he says to them, Have you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes here from the psalm, Psalm 118, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So as we were going through the story, it's not really clear initially, what, what does this vineyard represent? You know, we kind of understand the fact that, in a sense, the landowner represents God. In a parable, it's never exact. So he represents something about God. He's not just like God. And the, the servants who keep showing up, those seem to represent the, the prophets from the Old Testament who kept coming to the people and calling them to repent but they're often mistreated, right? And the final culmination is the greatest of prophets, Jesus Christ, the Son. You know, surely they would accept him, but no, they're already scheming to, to kill him, right? They're just looking for a break in the crowd when they can get him alone and it won't cause a riot. Jesus knows this, okay? So I think the vineyard in the story, though, represents the kingdom of God or heaven. So it's it's God's people ruled in his renewed place by his chosen king. Remember, we've talked about that as having three perspectives or three sides to a triangle. So it's God's people, you and I, ruled in a renewed, in a renewed place, the new heavens and the new earth, by God's chosen appointed king, Jesus, the Messiah, right? We know this because in verse 33, he rents a vineyard to some farmers. And then verse 41, he's going to take that same vineyard and he's going to rent it out to other, vineyard, other tenants. So the people who initially had it aren't going to have it anymore. Now it's going to go to someone else. And then in verse 44, he makes it very clear. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. All right. So by now in Matthew's story, fruit has become a pretty common theme, right? All the way back, as I say there in the notes, to Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, right? That's the first time it showed up. 
when the Pharisees came to John and wanted to be baptized, he said, no, unless you repent and you have fruit that matches repentance. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about knowing people like trees by their fruit. He's just cursed a fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. And here he's saying this, this kingdom, this, this thing that you've hoped for, that you believe is your birthright, that you're just going to get based on either your ethnicity or your own merit. They probably, a lot of them thought it was a combination of the two. You're actually not going to get it. This thing that you're expecting to get, you won't get it. Instead, it's going to be given to another people. I don't think he necessarily at this point is thinking like it's going to go from Jewish people to Gentile people. I don't think we have to make that connection. I think primarily he's thinking not to you Jewish people, but to future Jewish people, saved Jewish people, Israelites who actually accept me. But remember that the prophecies in the Old Testament always said that when the people of Israel receive their renewed place, their kingdom, that we as Gentiles would be included in it. So we don't have to make a distinction between Jewish and Gentile. It's always been both. It's always been a kingdom that would go from one horizon to another horizon and would include people from every, every nation, okay? But it has to be people who produce fruit. But he has one last parable. This one here is about a wedding feast. This is the longest one, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 22. Are you pretty familiar with this parable? Have you read it recently? The man wants to have a wedding. He invites people. The people who initially are invited, they seem to re represent the Jewish leaders again. They don't want to come. They just refuse to come, right? So they're like the son who won't do what the father told him to do. So then the king decides, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to call other people. So he goes out into the, the, the highways and the byways. Again, I think parallel with the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He finds unlikely people, and he just says, come. Anyone who hears, come, right? But then a strange thing happens at the very end, because there's some people who show up who actually aren't supposed to be there. So I think there's this distinction between a general call in the gospel that goes out to all people and then the, actually, the actual saving grace of God in choosing some to give them righteousness. Um, and this becomes very clear at the very end. So look at verse 14. He says, For many are invited, but few are chosen. The picture is really here, I mean, if you think about the parable in our modern terms, it's of wedding crashers, right? We're familiar with the concept of wedding crashers. People who just show up even though they didn't have an invitation and try to blend in. Well, here in this story, that was hard for them to do because there must have been some kind of specific close. Remember, he went out in the highways and byways and he's just grabbing random people who don't have a nice white outfit to wear to the wedding. Just like in our own times, they would dress up for a wedding or a banquet. They'd put on their nice clothes and some individuals show up without the appropriate clothes. And then it becomes a little darker. So wedding crasher maybe is humorous. But this is something that the king actually takes very seriously. Look at verse 13. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then he says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. I know some people have tried to turn this darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth into something less than the lake of fire, like some kind of lack of reward in the kingdom, or maybe while some of us are celebrating the kingdom, there's other people out there digging ditches that are doing some other menial labor. Sometimes you hear that in preaching. I just think that's sadly mistaken. I think outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth is, is a picture of the horrible condition of those who are ultimately spiritually separated from God forever. So there's people who show up that think they can just enter into the party. And Jesus' point is like, no, there's something that has to be given to you. And it's represented by the garments. So what, what are the garments? He never actually says here, but I think there's enough other places in the Bible that talk about the same imagery that we can make a pretty firm conclusion, all right? So I think what we have here is that the clothes represent the righteousness of those who are allowed to remain at the feast. So it's only going to be the righteous, those who have been justified and those who have been sanctified, who are going to be able to enter into the, the banquet that represents the kingdom. So just think of some other places in the New Testament. I don't think it's a stretch to think that all of these other New Testament writers are building their teaching off of Jesus because Jesus' teaching was foundational. So you think of Paul. He says in Romans 13, you need to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 says you have, he's talking to Christians, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Colossians 3.10, we know this passage pretty well, right? He's talking about our conversion. You put on the new self which is being renewed. I like that it has both aspects, right? We, we, are, we are a new self, but we're not a complete new self. We're also making baby steps towards being renewed. Ephesians 4 is the same concept. You've put on the new self. And then you get all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 3. It shows up quite a bit. When John's writing to the churches, first to one of them in chapter 3, he says, they will walk with me. This is Jesus speaking. They'll be dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And then in the next section, when he's talking to another church, he says, I counsel you to buy from me white clothes to wear. And then all the way at the very end, Revelation 19, when you have the picture of the, the feast itself, the marriage supper of the Lamb, it, we're described there as people who have fine linen bright and clean, that was given to us, the bride, to wear. I think that's enough places in the Bible where all of these writers are using the same imagery that we can say with confidence that that's Jesus' point. So just pulling that all together, there's a general call that goes out to all men and women. Come, repent. As Jesus himself said, come to me and you'll find rest, right? He holds out his hands to everyone, the general call. But there's also something that we would call the, the special call. It's God's saving grace. It goes out, as he says here in verse 14, to the few who are chosen. It's a call that comes out with a hand. It's a call that goes out and grabs. It's a call that goes out and changes hearts. It actually makes you justified and sanctified. It gives you a new clothing. It clothes you with Christ himself. You start to become like him. And it's those people who are going to be welcomed into the feast. 
and be able to stay there with their king forever. So it's a great little parable. There's lots of stuff packed into those 14 verses. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a, that's a good point. People who just show up thinking they belong, but they really don't. And I don't think we have to make a distinction between is this, is this imputed righteousness, is this justification, or is this actual righteousness, is this sanctification? I don't think we have to make the distinction because the Bible always puts those together. Another place that maybe, you know, I'm going to say maybe with an italics and an underline, that Jesus could be thinking of is Zechariah 3 is a famous prophecy. Remember the vision of the high priest who's standing there and he has clothes that are horribly soiled and then uh, the Satan, the accuser, accuses him, you know, says, hey, this guy doesn't even belong here. Look at him. And then his clothes are removed and he's given clean clothes. It's a picture of the future conversion of Israel. So that even could be in the back of Jesus' mind as he tells the story. All right. So that, uh, that brings us to the end of those three spoken parables. And then we have our third set of three. Remember, Matthew likes his threes. I don't know if I've said it yet in this class, but you, you can't help but think that his fondness for threes is going to culminate in his very last thing that he says in the gospel, right? He's the only one that makes a Trinitarian statement at the end, right? That we're supposed to go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I can't prove it, but it seems like that could be an explanation for why he keeps arranging things in, in threes, because he's thinking of our, our triune God. But here he has three quick little stories about people who come to try to trap Jesus. And by now in Matthew's story, we should know this is not going to work. He is greater than Solomon, right? He is the, he is the wisest of men. And so the first one is a group of Pharisees. They show up and they try to trap him with a question about taxes, right? Uh, they know that no matter how he answers this, he's going to make one of two groups upset. He's either going to alienate someone like the Zealots or people who are starting to foment revolution towards Rome. They're still, they're still several decades away from their full-blown revolution, but there's already people that aren't too happy about the, the taxes that they have to pay. And remember, there's that whole tax system that's very corrupt that comes into play when we get to the Zacchaeus story. So if he says, you know, pay your taxes, those people are going to be upset. If he says, don't pay your taxes, then he's going to be on the wrong side of his government, right? And I think it's fair to say that Jesus agrees with Paul, right? Or that Paul agrees with Jesus that we do owe our taxes to our government because they are God's servants. So how will Jesus answer? Well, he comes up with something very wise, right? He shows them the coin. They have to admit that it has... Caesar's inscription on it. 
So he says there in verse 21, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, right? The, the coin itself is proof that Caesar has a realm. He has a space that God has given him to rule and have authority in. And within that realm, within that space, we have obligations to him just like he has obligations to us, our government officials do. And so it's right for us to, to give them tribute, right? Again, Paul has to be thinking of this in the back of his mind when he writes in Romans chapter 13 about our relationship with government. So he, he very deftly dodges this first trap, right? They're no match for him. Well, then some Sadducees show up. Remember, these are two groups that don't even like each other, but they are united in the fact that they don't like Jesus, right? So now the Sadducees show up. Remember, the Sadducees, and Matthew reminds us of this in verse 23, they say there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees are very, you know, they're the materialists of their day. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're very tied politically into the, the priesthood and the, the temple worship there in Jerusalem, but it's pretty much just a political position for them, okay? They're not devoutly religious the way that the Pharisees are, okay? So they come up with this ridiculous hypothetical situation about a, a woman who is married to seven brothers in a row, and each one of them keeps dying because they're here, they're presupposing the Old Testament law that says that a, if a brother dies and he has another brother who's able to marry her, that he should marry her in order to produce children for the family. Well, they're like, well, if, if, he, if she just ends up marrying seven of them and they all die, after the resurrection, which one of them is she going to be married to? Well, then look at how Jesus responds in verse 29. He says, you're an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Then, you know, he kind of just sets their question aside, and then he goes after them for what their true problem is. They don't actually believe in the resurrection. And he proves the resurrection by quoting from the Old Testament. It's a way that I never would have thought to do it, right? But our Lord thinks to do it this way. He says that when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, when he referred to Abraham, he referred to him in the present tense, as he is currently the God of Abraham, which meant that Abraham still existed, that someplace Abraham was, and God was still his father, a proof that he, he still lives. And then the, the last one here, you have this expert in the law that shows up. So he's a Pharisee. He's part of the first group. But he's like their, their ace commando, right? They send out someone that they think is just especially good with the law, and they're going to try to get him one-on-one -on -one with Jesus in order to try to trap him. And he asks probably a question that many people at the time were asking. You know, of all the 600-some commandments, which one is uh, the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies with, uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
And then you're, you're not really sure. As you're reading through that, you're like, okay, I know that Jesus is right, and it makes sense that he quotes these commandments, but how's that really a response? What's the tension? Would this guy disagree with that? No, he wouldn't disagree with that. But the problem is, is that when he thinks of the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with your whole being, he doesn't put Jesus up there with the God who's supposed to be loved. So he would technically maybe have a right view of what the great commandment is, but he has an incomplete view because he's not including Jesus as one who should be loved with their whole being. And so I think that's where the next paragraph is coming from. That's why we go straight from this confrontation with the Pharisee to then now Jesus asks the question. He's done receiving questions now from his opponents. Now he's on the offensive and he's asking them a question. He says to them in verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, they know the answer to that one, right? He's, he's the son of David. And then he says, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what's Jesus doing there? Well, how did he answer him? Well, he's quoting here from the very first verse of Psalm 110, he says some remarkable things. These are bullet points on our last page for tonight. So page 82, those bullet points under point L. First of all, he clearly believes in the inspiration of Scripture. So David wrote this in Psalm 110, but he wrote it by the Spirit. Okay, that's the first thing we can say. That's not Jesus' main point, but it's something that we can glean from this passage. Number two, when Jesus, or when, I'm sorry, when David says this, he said it as a prophecy. It's not immediate clear, but that word said there is a, it's an unusual word for said. It's a word that's usually used in prophecy. It's, he, he gets a prophetic oracle. Basically, David, as a prophet, he got to listen in on a conversation that takes place in heaven. And he, not, he didn't just hear any conversation. He heard a conversation about the future. He heard two persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, speaking to each other about something that will take place in the future from his perspective. And then he was led by the Spirit to write that down, presumably put it to music because it's in the Psalter, and it's preserved through the centuries so that Jesus, the one who was originally one of the characters in the prophecy, can give it and share it with these, with these skeptics. All right. In that conversation, point three, there's a Lord. And in, if you go back into your Old Testament, this is one of those places where Lord is in all caps because it's the personal name for God. He's speaking to another person. So in yellow, that would be God the Father. So I just did some quick colors there. I wasn't meaning to do a stoplights, but that's just how it came out. So we've got the Lord, the Father, God the Father. He says to my Lord, so the my is, that's David speaking, right? He's, he's the one that's putting that in the first person. But there's another person who's the Lord. 
And that's Jesus' point, that if the Messiah is David's son, if he's like subordinate, if he's down the, the food chain, so to speak, why did David himself call him his Lord? Right? That's the puzzle. And the only way that that makes sense is that Jesus is just a little bit more complicated than these men understand, right? That he is a physical descendant of David, but he's also the eternal son of God. And that David himself knew that he was going to have this Lord, this greater king, who was going to do all of the great things that Psalm 110 prophesied. So you have this little conversation that David got to hear between God the Father and God the Son. And I said it's about the future because, see, look what God the Father says to him. He says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. We know from the rest of this, from the rest of the New Testament, especially the opening chapters of the book of Acts, that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So it's future from David's perspective. There's going to be time where Jesus will be king, and he will sit down and reign, but there's going to be an until part. That's the key word there. There's going to be until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is now reigning. I have no problem saying he's, he's my king, right? I'm his subject. He, he bought me with his own blood. But most of the world doesn't recognize him as their king, do they? But someday he will return and he will take back what rightly belongs to him. So that's why Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The early church, the men who wrote the New Testament, they loved this passage. And I think one of the reasons why they loved it is because they realized they were living in the until part. <laughs> that this passage actually provided the logic for this time period that you and I live in. And then you go through the rest of the passage, it continues, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter. So there's God the Father extending the scepter of God the Son. What's scepter language remind us of? What are a couple of Old Testament passages that we've looked at just recently that talked about a scepter? You've got Genesis chapter 49, right? The prophecy that Jacob made to Judah, that the scepter would not depart from him until the one who it rightly belongs to. You've got Balaam's prophecy in the book of Numbers. I think that's chapter 28. Somebody can tell me later if I'm wrong. I think it's 28. It talks about a scepter that will rise from Judah. Here we have the Lord extending the Messiah's scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And of course, that becomes really important to the author of Hebrews, right? Because Jesus just isn't any king, but he's a priest king. He's a priest and a king at the same time. When he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, not only is he ruling over us, who are his people, but he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. He's the one who makes it possible for you and I to approach the Father's throne. That's the passage that Jesus gives back to his opponents, and then that's in. Until we get to the, the actual arrest and his trial, 
there's no more interaction here with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a good place to stop there, the end of chapter 22. Any, any questions or thoughts there that we can address? Yes, sir. The seven brothers, was it the mushrooms they ate? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, about poison mushrooms, I'm assuming? Yeah. Okay. Is this just a community joke here in Trenton, or? I don't know. What's the joke? Well, the wife, you had three husbands. You know? Okay. And uh, the last one died of a head wound, you know, because he wouldn't eat the mushrooms. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it is an absurd situation they come up with, right? And I think sometimes in the Bible there is irony, right? There is irony, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. I think when we read what the Sadducees say, we're supposed to realize that this is, this is just foolishness, right? This would never happen in real life that the same woman would end up married seven brothers and that they would all die. But their, their, their foolishness in posing that kind of question just highlights Jesus' wisdom, right? He doesn't go down to their level. He just quickly puts their question aside, and then he attacks their root problem, which is they don't actually believe the Scriptures, which is you know, evidenced by the fact that they don't really believe in a resurrection. Yeah. Maybe mushrooms. I don't know, though. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, so when we come back next week, Matthew 23, that's going to be uh, Jesus' kind of discourse, the woe statements about the Pharisees. And then we'll go into the very last discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. All right, thanks. We'll see you all next week, Lord willing. Thank you. Don't, don't be eating much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>